you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for LAist's new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We are where we eat. We'll go behind the scenes of LA restaurants. The kickoff event is May 22nd. Tickets at LAist.com events. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. Austin Cross with you today in for Larry Mantle, who is back with you tomorrow for Valentine's Day. Speaking of, we are all about love here on Air Talk this week. And coming up, a question that I want to hear from you on. Do you believe in love at first sight? To quote the Beatles, I'm certain it happens all the time, but we want to hear what science says about that as well. That is coming up. We're going to be all about love today. But we start with LA Unified because school board members are scheduled to vote today on whether to further limit where charter schools can be located within the district. And that comes after years of tensions between traditional public schools and the charters forced to share space and resources. Here with more is LAS education reporter Mariana Dale. Mariana, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, just start us off with a look at what they will be voting on today. Yeah, so I'm going to give some background here. Uh, Some parents might not know this, but we really have two different kinds of public schools in the Los Angeles Unified School District and in California. You've got your traditional kind of district-run schools, and then you also have this subset of public schools called charter schools that are run by outside nonprofits. And all of us here know that space is really at a premium in Los Angeles, and there's a state law in California that says that Charter schools have to be given, you know, kind of an equal shot at existing facilities in a school district. The legal term Mm. is reasonably equivalent. And so they can apply to the school district for space for their students. And another trend that intersects with this is that in the last 20 years, LAUSD has lost a lot of its enrollment, about 40%, which Mm. means that many schools have a lot of extra space uh, to share. But how that's been divvied up has been the point of a lot of contention. And so today, what the board is going to be voting on are, are changes to rules and how that space is divided. The board members who brought forward this resolution last fall, board president Jackie Goldberg, supported by board member uh, Rocio Rivas, they want to make sure that schools that are serving vulnerable, high-need students don't have this additional burden of having to share space with a charter school. And that's based on their experience as board members, hearing from principals, from families who say it's really challenging to have a whole separate school located on their school campus. If you are an LAUSD parent or educator and you could be with the charter schools or otherwise, I'd love to hear from you, hear your thoughts on the policy that's up for a vote today. 866-893-5722 is our number if you're a parent or educator, whether you're with LA Unified on the public school side or the charter school side. 866-893-5722 is our number. 
You can also email us, atcomments at laist.com. Just be sure to include your location and your first name. Well, Mariana, I mentioned a little bit earlier these tensions between LA Unified and charter schools. Now, you did mention that there is more space at some public schools, and that's where we've seen charters move in. But could you expand on what these historic tensions have been between the two? Yeah, so uh, let's look at it kind of from either side of the equation. So you have your traditional public school that's trying to figure out how to serve its students. We have seen declining enrollment. So there are fewer kids perhaps in a space that was meant to originally have more students, but a lot of schools are now adding additional services to their campuses. I'm talking about mental health counselors, you know, food pantries, additional arts classes, areas where therapies can be provided on campus. And so an argument that you see some schools make is that, hey, this might not be a, a classroom where we're having a third grade class meet every day, but we really need this extra space to have um, a food pantry or to have an art space. And then there's a concern that when the district is evaluating, you know, what might seem like extra space, that space isn't really extra. The schools say, hey, we really need this space to serve students. And if you move a charter school classroom into here, that's going to remove the amount of resources that are available to students in the traditional public school. Then on the other side of the coin, you know, we've had this policy discussed at at least three meetings since the fall. So we've had a chance to hear a lot of public comments. So that's where I'm drawing these observations from. You hear from charter school operators who say, you know, we would really like to serve students in these high needs areas. We are bringing this program that we believe is innovative or does something a little bit different than a traditional public school. Mm. And we're looking for space to be able to do that program and to serve these same high needs students. And there are cases where in an effort to kind of preserve space for the existing school, charter schools might actually have to operate their school across different campuses, which comes with a lot of logistical challenges. Um, and there's there's been even lawsuits in the past saying that LAUSD isn't calculating the amount of space that it has available appropriately, and it's had to make changes because of that. So really, whether you're a traditional public school or a charter school, there have been challenges with this policy. We also have heard, though, from schools who say, this arrangement has worked well for us. We are two schools that share resources well. We feel like we're able to serve students in this community. So there is no one universal experience here. Talking right now with Mariana Dale, LAist senior reporter covering K through 12 education. If you're an LA Unified parent or educator, whether you're with the public school side or the charter school side, we'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on this policy. Let's up for a vote today. 866-893-5722 is our number. Again, that's 866-893-5722. You can also email us, atcomments at laist.com. Stephanie is calling us from Pasadena. Stephanie, I understand that you were a teacher at a charter school, but tell us what you're thinking this morning. Um, yeah, I was a teacher at a charter school in Pasadena. So not LAUSD, but Pasadena has the same um, kind of issues. And uh, it was really unfortunate because with the public school uh, that was shared was uh, just a kindergarten uh, class. Uh, and we 
had no access to the library. So there were all these facilities and areas of the school uh, that we had no access to, and uh, including classrooms that were empty that like could have been used for extra space to do other projects and things like that. So it was really frustrating um, to have a lack of facility uh, where it's just right there and uh, unable to be shared or used at all uh, because I never saw uh, the doors were always locked on that library. Um, so I just invested in tons of books for my kids. That's Stephanie calling us from Pasadena, 866-893-5722. If you're a parent or educator and you'd like to weigh in on the policy that's up for a vote today. Mariana, you just heard Stephanie's call there. Is that a big uh, concern for people on either side of this discussion, just kind of the use of the facilities, but also access for the students who are maybe sharing the same space. Absolutely. I mean, there are certain uh, facilities or resources that are considered exclusive to the public school that aren't able to be shared with the charter school. But then you do create a scenario where students on the same campus don't have access to the same resources. And I think whether you're a charter school operator or a traditional public school operator, that could be considered an issue of equity. The California Charter School Association has been very vocal about changes to this policy since last summer, really. And they're saying that, you know, this is is not necessarily an issue of, of opinion, but it's whether LAUSD is following what California law says, which uses that term reasonably equivalent, that the school district has to provide facilities that are considered reasonably equivalent, whether you're a charter school student or a public school student. That term has been the basis of, of much debate over the last 20 years. The California Charter School Association saying that there could be further legal action if LAUSD adopts this this revision to its existing policy. I mean, your mention of reasonably equivalent, so I know that that is a reference to Proposition 39, which was passed in the year 2000. And I also understand that there's going to be a little bit of clarification now uh, as to how the district can accommodate charter schools and their requests for space without disrupting programs that are already existing on the campus. Could you talk us through maybe some of these clarified guidelines and do those help get at some of the lack of agreement that we've seen since Proposition 39 was passed 24 years ago? So some of these guidelines, I think, seem pretty obvious and have always been a part of how the district considers divvying up its space. It's considering whether students will be safe in this new situation. It doesn't want to move charter schools under necessarily if they've, you know, set up a really successful program and maybe they need to add and they want to add another grade level because they're now growing. They don't want to then uproot that entire school to a totally different campus, for example. And then they also don't want to displace district students who, you know, this is their neighborhood school. This is where they want to attend. And something that had come up in previous meetings is how the district decides what's considered kind of unused classroom space. So is that classroom that looks empty most of the time actually be using 
actually being used as a space for therapy, for example. And so they're trying to come up with additional rules to really decide what space is available or not. And then where it gets really specific where board members really don't want to see these co-locations are on a, a couple of subgroups of campuses. And I think the best way to kind of umbrella characterize them are these are campuses where students have been identified as needing extra support, hmm. academic support, mental health support, additional resources. That's the the schools that are part of the Black Student Achievement Program, which is trying to kind of lift up Black students and provide additional resources. That's also the district's priority schools, ones that have been identified as being performing low academically. And then also community schools. This is a kind of an emerging school model where your school site isn't just where you go to get an education. It's where you might be able to get food from a food pantry. Your family might be able to get legal help. There are additional kind of wraparound services meant to support students. And so what board members have said is that, you know, these are schools that already have a lot going on. We don't need to add the additional burden of managing a co-location to these schools. But then again, on the other side, you have charter school operators saying, hey, if there are vulnerable students in this community, students that have high academic needs, those are also the students that we want to be serving. Talking right now with Mariana Dale, LAist senior reporter covering K through 12 education. We're talking about LA Unified School Board members scheduled to vote today on whether to limit where charter schools can be located within the district. And Mariana, I do have to also touch on some of your other reporting that you've done for our voter game plan, uh, because um, there are some districts that do have school board elections happening. Uh, I'm wondering if you could give us a sense of just how uh, major this is, but also if charter schools are going to factor into some of the bigger education issues that those people once elected will take on. Absolutely. So whatever way the policy goes today, we are going to have a different looking board that's going to be really responsible for enforcing that policy. We have four of the seven LAUSD board member seats on the March primary ballot. We have two incumbents running for re-election. That's Scott Schmerlson and Tanya Ortiz Franklin, who are looking to maintain their seats in District 3 and 7. And then two longtime board members, Jackie Goldberg, the current board president, and board member George McKenna are retiring at the end of the year. So there's a wide open field in Districts 1 and 5. George McKenna and Jackie Goldberg have um, enjoyed a lot of support from, from the teachers union. Uh, Board President Goldberg is was kind of behind this current policy that we are talking about. And so charter schools have historically been uh, a large issue in, in board races, contributed to a lot of campaign spending. We've seen less of that in recent years as we've really seen the focus shift to you know more pressing challenges like the district's declining enrollment as well as recovery from the pandemic, but supporters of charter schools have been big spenders in board races in the past. That's Mariana Dale. She's LAist's senior K-12 education reporter. She's covering today's vote on this new policy. Mariana, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. You can read her story about today's vote on this new charter policy on the front page of LAist right now. You can also check out her contributions to the LAist voter game plan. Very 
very helpful resource to have. She breaks down all the races for LA Unified School Board uh, that are going to be on the March primary ballot. That's at LAist.com slash vote. This is Air Talk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. Coming up, we are going to talk with a misinformation researcher who's been digging into how AI is stoking the flames of conspiracy theories that are spreading on TikTok. You don't want to miss this. It is fascinating. Back in one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in for Larry Mandel. He's back with you tomorrow for Valentine's Day. That's going to be fun. You know, there's a whole lot of misinformation on the internet. Conspiracy theories, you name it. And up until recently, most of it's been disseminated by human beings who have various intentions. Now, some are hoping to sow discord and misunderstanding, but others just want to, you know, troll you, waste your time. But now, as if you didn't have enough to worry about this election cycle, there is rising concern about AI-generated conspiracy theories on TikTok. There's even some thought that TikTok kind of incentivizes it. Abby Richards wrote about it for Media Matters for America, which researches and analyzes conservative misinformation in the U.S. media. Her piece is titled, TikTok has an AI conspiracy theory problem. Abby, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your research. Thank you so much for having me. I should also mention that Abby is a TikToker. So that leads me into my first question, which is what prompted you to dig into this and what did you discover when you did? Oh, so I spend a lot of time on TikTok. It's part of my job, right? I'm a TikToker and a TikTok misinformation researcher. And uh, while scrolling and just like inundating myself in the different worlds of TikTok, I kept seeing these videos that all looked the same. Um, They would be different kind of fun seeming conspiracy theories that would start off with some like really unhinged hook and be like, Mm -hmm. the US discovered a vampire and they're keeping it a secret (laughs) or like, the US government created a hellhound and they won't tell you. (laughs) The hellhound one got me for sure. Yeah, the hellhound one was pretty good. Um, and they would be accompanied with this, these images that were like seemingly AI generated and read by an AI or seemingly AI generated, uh, voice. And I just kept seeing them and I really wanted to dive into them and figure out what was going on here. 
And so you started doing a little bit of digging, and what did you discover once you got deeper into it? Yeah, so I found uh, content creators online who were essentially just posting videos that were how-tos on how to make this content, like step-by-step how to make this content. And the reason why, like the, the... Uh, reason why they were suggesting you should is because you could profit off of it. They were selling it as like a way to make supposedly thousands of dollars. Um, And that's because TikTok launched this program called the Creativity Program, which is designed to compensate creators for the content that they produce, uh, which is very good. You know, TikTok should be paying creators for the labor that they contribute to the platform. That's great. Um, But it's also currently in paying you based off of really how viral the content is going. Um, And it's requiring that the videos meet a certain uh, time length criteria of 60 seconds, which has kind of created this natural outcome of of encouraging really low quality information um, that's designed for virality rather than like accuracy. I mean, so it seemed like a little bit of an anarchist's cookbook of how to make one of these. There's uh, there's Discord servers that you were checking out. Uh, can we get into the recipe a little bit of what goes into one of these uh, videos, kind of what the formula appears to be? Oh, absolutely. I'm so glad you asked. Um, so step one is you need to find a conspiracy theory. Um, and then you really want to start off strong. Wait, so are we uh, coming up with these conspiracy theories or are they asking AI to come up with the conspiracy? I see a little bit of both. Some of them say that like they pull them from TikTok, they pull them from Reddit, they pull them from other, you know, online circles that talk about conspiracy theories. Mm. Um, others say that they go and ask uh, ChatGBT for a prompt. Um, I don't know how well that works, but they certainly encouraged each other to do it. Okay, so you've got your your topic, your sticky thing. So let's just stay. Uh, well, so I'll, I'll use one that stood out to me that was actually a little bit terrifying because it used a Joe Rogan clip or fake mm. Joe Rogan voice and then video overlay of Joe Rogan to kind of add to it. But so you've got your your thing, and I think that one was an asteroid is coming to hit Earth. This is fake. <laughs> Everybody knows an asteroid is coming to hit Earth in a couple of years. So you got something sticky. Then what do they do? Yeah, so you start off with something really unhinged to get people's attention right off the bat because you got to hook people in. You got to remember, like, we're scrolling through short form content. You got to you gotta make people want to watch within the first couple of seconds. Um, then you typically create a, fa- a fake backstory. So a lot of the time they create just like a fake researcher slash scientist slash explorer um, and give them a backstory of how they came to discover this like secret knowledge. Uh, You know, they were on a hike five days ago and were exploring some caves and discovered a vampire or they were on an expedition to Antarctica and they discovered a dragon. Um, I think in the one that you're referencing, it was Joe Rogan, AI Joe Rogan was claiming that like some scientists overheard other scientists talking about this asteroid. So you create this fake background story um, and then you're gonna need to generate some images to make it visually interesting because nobody wants to just listen to an AI talk with like nothing to look at, you know? So what's on these images? 
something that is ideally relevant to the story you're telling. So if we're talking about a dragon in Antarctica, you go to an AI generating, an AI image generator, and you go show me a what a dragon would look like if it were in Antarctica. <laughs> you get some of those clips, you throw that in there. Um, you go show me a show me a scientist in Antarctica and you throw that in there. Um, and then you're gonna really what they do and what they encourage each other to do is to edit it so that it's incredibly engaging. Um, so it's addictive, images, really. Yeah, images are moving constantly, very fast paced. Um, they encourage captions because that keeps people really engaged. Um, all of those things keep people watching longer. And the longer they watch, um, essentially the more viral it will go, but also the higher your revenue will be. Should reintroduce you. I'm talking right now with Abby Richards, senior video producer at Media Matters for America. She's also a TikToker. She's a TikTok misinformation researcher. She's been going really deep uh, into these artificial conspiracy theories created by AI, voiced by AI, images by AI showing up on TikTok. And Abby, what kind of numbers are they doing? What kind of viewership are these videos getting? Oh, some of them were getting like tens of millions of views, mm. um, really high engagement on on some of these. And some accounts, like they just exclusively post this content and they were getting, you know, one account that had been posting for about a year had well over 300 million views um, in wow. total on, on just this sort of content. Now, I'll say like for me in the media industry, you know, there's a part of me that itches when I hear that idea because I'm like, ah, oh, you're putting something out there that's not true and it's spreading. And I mean, when you talk about things and maybe you can give us an idea of some of the other stories, conspiracies that are out there, totally fake things. Again, I will say, um, but you'd mentioned the hellhound, um, <laughs> the U.S. government developing a hellhound as a you know, <laughs> theory that's being put out there or, or vampires. And I don't believe it. I there might be somebody who does. How much fear is there that people are actually believing these conspiracies, though? Or are they just and I say this realizing how difficult it is to create sticky content on TikTok. How much of it is just kind of indicative that this is the kind of storytelling that could maybe be the future for media consumers? I think that when we're talking about like these like seemingly fun, harmless conspiracy theories, it's easy to like look at the individual one and be like, well, that doesn't seem too harmful. And what I'm really concerned with is less the individual narratives is like specifically if the US government created a hellhound, um, but more that like we are incentivizing their TikTok is like essentially incentivizing this kind of content um, and financially rewarding it. And I don't want to live in a world where my feeds are filled with content that's being produced to make as much money as quickly as possible, um, rather than content that is, uh, you know, researched and comes from a place of like people actually having ideas they want to share. Uh, that's how, to me sounds a little bit dystopian, and I'd rather be encouraging like you know the tiktok creator program is really great it's good that we're we're compensating creators it's also an opportunity to be creating or to be compensating artists and educators who create high quality content uh so as to whether this is the direction that the media ecosystem is moving i think that it's certainly 
the direction that like the algorithmically driven, like engagement driven um, content ecosystem we live in is is headed. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that that's necessarily a good thing. And I think that that's probably something we should be resisting. Well, so the place where all this is happening, world's most popular social media platform right now, TikTok, is this as much a problem on other ones like YouTube, Instagram, or is it this creator program that makes a difference? Is it the algorithm that makes a difference? What are you seeing on that front? It's hard to say. I haven't specifically looked into how these are manifesting on other platforms. Um, they certainly exist on other platforms. Like, I don't think this is like unique to TikTok. Um, but right now, what we are seeing is because of the creator program, there has been this kind of cottage industry that's popped up around it specifically. Now, I want to also ask, because as you did your research into these AI-generated conspiracy theories for folks just joining us, um, you actually realized that people have made a real business out of this. Sometimes they're operating more than one account in more than one language. Yeah. Yeah. I found uh, there was an account operating in English and Spanish, um, or they were seemingly affiliated. They had the same profile picture and name translated. Um, and some of the videos were nearly identical uh, and just translated into the other, into another language. Uh, additionally, you have these kind of, uh, content creator gurus who post videos about how to create this sort of content, how to create AI-generated content. Um, and they have courses, like, right, they'll sell one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, it's, it's an entire kind of wow. business that's emerged out of it. I mean, here's where I get concerned, Abby Richards, because you mentioned the Spanish language, and I am not far enough removed from the pandemic to remember uh, the amount of misinformation that was happening at the time, not only around the coronavirus, but also around the vaccine and also how that was reverberating throughout communities of color. So it could be, you know, this conspiracy about the U.S. government creating a hellhound somewhere in a dugout cavern near, um, what was it, the Grand Canyon, I think was <laughs> yeah, the, the was story Grand that they came up with. Yeah. <laughs> but my real concern is when people might start to capitalize off of something that could have very real long-lasting effects. It could essentially poison the well for people for decades to come. Is that a major concern at this point? Yes, I would absolutely say I'm, I'm concerned about that. Um, I'm concerned about the scale at which AI also can amplify that, that problem. Um, I think that a lot of our conversations around AI and like synthetic media are about like deep fakes and convincing people that something they're seeing is real. And that is absolutely an issue. I, I don't want to dismiss that. Um, but this is slightly different. And this is more about like pumping out really engaging misinformation using AI. Like AI here is just allowing for really engaging misinformation um, to be uh, produced at a volume that like I, as a content creator, can't keep up with. Like mm. I also make short form videos. I cannot keep up with the pace that like an AI script and some like AI uh, generated images can just like pump out misinformation and make it look like, you know, make it really engaging to watch. 
you know, this my my final thought on this, but I think that when you grow up in America, as as I have up until the pandemic, I kind of had this operating assumption that somebody's taking care of everything. Somebody's just handling the things that we, we could be worrying about. Oh, there's somebody on it. There's a department for it. There's a lawmaker proposing a law for it. There's police, you know. And, and so I, I, you know, for a long time, I had a lot of faith in these systems that we built meticulously over the past 200 or so years to protect us from things that could harm us in the short term and in the long term. But we're heading into an election now. Uh, we've watched TikTok's leaders get grilled on Capitol Hill several times now for uh, the effects that their platforms have on young people and have on children. But we've also watched the gridlock play out in Washington as well. But all this leads me to this question of who's coming to save us as we see a challenge like this, because TikTok, this is their business. You know, like they, they created this creator program. They've got this algorithm. This is how a company fundamentally operates. And at the same time, it is rewarding people who are creating content that maybe not quite yet, but soon could have some very negative effects for democracy, for public health. Who's coming to save us in this situation, Abby, or what needs to be done to help save us? Oh, man. <laughs> I'm sorry to keep it all on you, but I mean, yeah, I'm, no, just a light yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I don't think anyone is coming to save us. I think this is very much a situation that we have to save ourselves from. Um, these technologies are being are, are coming out so fast, and we're mixing it with algorithms that are fundamentally driven by profit, right? Like these, the platforms that are hosting these uh this content are not concerned with how healthy of a society we are and how like educated the public is they're concerned with like their quarterly growth um and we need to be fighting against that like it's we really have to stand up for ourselves in this case because like we're fighting against a system that isn't going to prioritize like civic well-being. It's going to be looking for maximum profit at all times. Um, so it's it's up to us as like the citizens who are affected uh, to be putting our foot down and saying that like we need to be protecting ourselves as well, and that like these spaces need to be designed for our well-being as well. That's Abby Richards, misinformation researcher, senior video producer at Media Matters. Her recent article is TikTok, an AI conspiracy theory problem. Abby, thanks so much for coming on and sharing what you've learned. Thanks so much for having me. It's AirTalk here on LAist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. When we come back, we are going to talk about love. It is Valentine's weekend. Whew, after that conversation, I think I need to, to relax a little bit. My brain is all kinds of buzzing right now after learning everything that Abby Richards learned over at Media Matters for America. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about love, love at first sight. Do you believe it happens? Do you think that it's happened to you? If so, I would love to hear from you at 866-893-5722. Give me that meet cute. Tell me where you're at now. 866-893-5722. Love at first sight. When we come back on AirTalk. 
support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Democracy needs to be heard. Hi, this is Steve Inskeep with NPR's Morning Edition. Journalism and democracy go together, like late nights and taco trucks. Each is good on its own, but they're better together. So the fact that journalism is in crisis in many places is not good for democracy. Local reporting fuels democracy. It helps us understand the communities in which we live. Show your support today at las.com give. Thanks. <laughs> I love this. Must be air talk on your radio. Austin Crosby. Hey, you got love on the brain? We do this week. And we're talking about love at first sight. You know, you've seen the meet cute in movies a thousand times, right? Two strangers. They lock eyes from across a crowded room or on a busy sidewalk, maybe. Suddenly, inexplicably, they're in love. Now, look, research has shown that certain stages of romantic love are driven from room by dopamine. That magic little chemical in our brain that is responsible for motivating our ancestors to find food and water. So love, in a sense, is part of our survival system. But is it really possible to fall in love at first sight? Well, this is where I want to hear from you. Have you fallen in love at first sight? Maybe your parents. Do you know someone who has? What was it like? How did it go from there? Maybe maybe you thought you did, and it didn't go so hot. However this has played out for you, I would love to hear from you this morning. 866-893-5722 is our number. You can also email us atcomments at las.com, but it is love week. So if you got love, shout it. And if you thought you did and it didn't go so hot, I would also love to hear your cautionary tale. 866-893-5722 is our number. Lucy Brown is with me. She is a clinical professor of neurology at Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx and co-creator of the website, The Anatomy of love. Lucy, thank you so much for coming on today. Oh, it's so good to be here. Well, it's a question on a lot of folks' minds, I'm sure now after that intro, but I'll start off by asking, do you believe that love in first sight, at first sight, is possible? Oh, I certainly do. Oh, yes. Uh, there are so many people who report this. So, you know, it's not, doesn't happen to everybody, but for sure it happens. The uh, You just hmm. quoted, partly you quoted a song, you know, Some Enchanted Evening. South Pacific. <laughs> right. But, um, and it goes, you may see a stranger across a crowded room. And somehow, you know, you know, even then that somewhere you'll see them again and again. And hmm. so, you know. Um, po- oh, we might have lost Lucy Brown. Sometimes friends, you know. 
Well, Lucy, and sorry, you cut out there for just a little bit, but I mean, why do you think that we're so captivated as a society about this idea of love at first sight? I mean, I can tell you as a young person, you know, growing up and, you know, obviously as a young person does, dreaming of love one day, you just think it's going to be such a magical, like quantum moment, right? Like it's going to happen and it's going to change everything for you. But it's clearly captivated humans for millennia, I would say. Why do you think we're so captivated by this idea, even just through our culture? Oh, because it's such, no. So our culture likes a quick fix, but I don't think it's just that. I I think we adore love. We we like that feeling. Uh, it's a It's a high to be in love. And so to have it happen quickly, and to just know for sure this is the person um, that you want to pursue, that's it's a, it's a captivating idea that uh, something can happen so quickly and you don't have to think about it at all. Uh, love is a mini splendored thing. Talking right now with Lucy Brown, clinical professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. When we step back to her in just a second, we're going to talk about what science tells us about it. But Carol is giving us a call from Mar Vista. Carol, it looks like you are a believer in love at first sight. So maybe tell us how your story went. Well, I guess so. I guess you could call it love what happened. I'm, I've am i been married to the same person for 50 years where this happened. And uh, I was in graduate school and he was teaching a, a class and I walked into the room and saw him and I wasn't like looking for love particularly and um, this flash of lightning like a physical uh, a visual flash of lightning struck me like and I felt it in my whole body I was shaken and uh, I just from then on I couldn't get him out of my mind I couldn't get him nothing he was just it was just I was struck, and when I started going out with him and dating him or whatever you might call it, because it was in the 70s, um, he saw the same thing. The exact same thing hit him at that time, and uh, I never got over it, and I, it really happened to me. And I, a long time ago, there used to be these love comics, like when, they were com- when there were comic books, and I remember in the love comics, the girl would go, ah, and there would be zap, and you'd see a zap of lightning. And that's literally what happened to me. And uh, I've been with this man for 50 years now. Oh, my gosh. That is so incredible. Carol and Mar Vista, thank you so much for calling us, sharing your story. I want to get in one more really quickly. Randy is calling us from Newport Beach. Randy, tell us a little bit about your possibly maybe love at first sight story yeah well it i kind of think it was love first sight although who knows what love at first sight is when you're 24 years old and she was 22 um i was traveling europe for uh, 22 months and on my 20th month i met her at a student party in england she's actually from italy she was there to learn english and i thought well you're kind of cute um so Basically, we talked that whole night. Uh, nobody spoke to her. I didn't speak to her, or nobody else spoke to me, and we just kind of like hit it off. I walked her home, and I gave her a peck on the cheek, and I said, tell you what, can I call you tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock? 
And she said, sure. I called her at 9. And from then on, we had lunch, dinner, and we saw each other for the rest of my trip, which was two months. And four days after we had met, we both mm. looked at each other and it's like, you're the type of girl I'd like to marry. She goes, you're the type of guy I'd like to marry. And <laughs> keep in mind, I had a bit of experience traveling Europe for 20 months before that. So I'm like, this girl's really special. Um, wow. But, you know, was it love at first sight? Well, it was uh, um, uh, limerence for sure. Um, <clears throat> but we've been married for 33 years, have two wonderful children, and... You know, just I tell her I appreciate her every day. Um, kiss her, love her. She's just, I'm so blessed. But R- Randy, Leah, what's your wife's you? name, Randy? Leah. Leah. Shout out to Leah and Randy. Randy, thank you so much for sharing that story. That was Randy in Newport Beach. 866-893-5722 is our number. We're talking about love at first sight. When we come back, we're going to go back to our guest, Lucy Brown, who's a clinical professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine. We're going to actually talk about what's happening in your brain in those moments when people are feeling madly in love. We want to hear from you. 866 866- 893-5722 is our number. If you think that love at first sight has happened to you, we'd love to hear about it. If you thought that you did and maybe it actually didn't, but you learned something from it, oh, I would love to hear about that too. 866-893-5722 is our number. You can also email us atcomments at laist.com, laist.com, but come on, we got a line open for you right now. 866-893-5722. Shout that love. We'll be back in 60 seconds. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mandel. Thanks for hanging out with us as we talk about love, love at first sight. If it really happens, if it's happened to you, if you think it has, 866-893-5722 is our number. I'll say it slowly because I'm terrible at remembering numbers. 866-893-5722. We have a line open for you right now. In just a second, we're going to talk to Ricardo in Long Beach. But I want to come back to our expert on the line, Lucy Brown, clinical professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine, also co-creator of the website, The Anatomy of Love. Lucy, I know that you and your colleagues have studied the brain activity of people who are madly in love. What did you find out? Oh, so we looked at people who were in the early stages of romantic love. Because when we're talking about love at first sight, it is important to define the kind of love we're talking about because there's long-term companionate love, parental love, brotherly love, and there's this early stage intense romantic love, which mm. uses a primitive part of the brain called the ventral tegmental area, which has all most of the cells that contain dopamine for the whole brain. And this part of the brain really... Uh, is a drive system. So once I knew about the data from the brain and saw what parts were activated for early stage romantic love, I realized that um, we're really in a high, a kind of a drug high. It's a natural addiction. So the brain systems that are activated for romantic love are also activated by uh, a dose of cocaine. So <laughs> Um, and that's a, but that's, you know, what we realize now is there are natural addictions. Um, mm. Hunger and thirst is really a natural addiction. And so is 
the person who we're in love with. I think of us as being addicted to that person. And so they can give us a high. I mean, let me, and, could I just yeah, ask Lucy, based off of this then, like, was there an evolutionary function of love? Like were our primitive ancestors like falling madly in love with each other over some rocks or anything? Oh, like sure. So Helen Fisher <laughs> likes to say that, um, you know, it's part of the human reproductive strategy. And um, we talk about romantic love as a developed form of a mammalian drive. So not just an emotion, a drive to pursue preferred mates. And of course that keeps our species going um, to uh, have a mate and produce offspring. But, you know, it's also a function for protection. Romantic love, we stick together, we're together a lot. We, we protect each other uh, from predators perhaps, or, you know, mm. in these days just um, from others other dangers uh we have we can have talks together where we're enjoying something together that's very important enjoying life together talk so lucy, let me so, reintroduce you real quickly i'm sorry about that lucy brown talking right now with lucy brown clinical professor in neurology at einstein college of medicine in the bronx and i didn't mean to interrupt you there lucy you could please continue if you want oh that's fine so you know it's this kind of love at first sight is a kind of infatuation. And the people who called in so far have given fabulous examples of, of what it involves. You know, when I talk about that, the reward system, neuroscientists call it an activation of the reward system. And there was this flash of light for the first woman who spoke she was a little nervous, you know, she, she was almost trembling, but she also was very lucky that the other person had a flash also mm. and in instantly was attracted to her. And the attraction is not just sex. I think that's an important distinction to make. It's this desire for emotional union. So mm. this romantic love involves a connection with another person, sharing your dreams with another person. Uh, sex can be a big part of it and make it wonderful. So it's it's this emotional union that's so important. Lucy, uh, I want to get in one a couple people because a few sure. people have called in to, to share their love stories. Let's start with Lindsay in Pasadena. Uh, and Lindsay, I understand that your somewhat love at first sight story happened when you first moved to LA. Tell us quickly about that. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was walking out of a bar with my best friend in um, Hollywood, California. I just moved to Los Angeles and I was standing outside the bar and all of a sudden this guy walks up and literally like bumps into me, like almost knocks me over. And I'm like, ow. And he's like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah. He's like, hi. I'm, he's like, do you know where this um, one bar is? And it was actually the bar I came out of, and it was in neon lights above our head. I'm like, that one? He's like, oh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> well, uh, what's your name? And so then for some reason when I saw him, it was like this amazing spark. Like my whole body was just like, whoa. And I um, pulled him in by his shoulders, and I whispered in his ear my name. And I was like, my name is Lindsay. And he looked back at me, and then I was like, what's your name? And then he whispered back, like, David, like, very nervous. And I said, and then he goes, 
but why are we whispering? And I said, because it looks like we're talking about something really important, but we're not. And then we both started <laughs> laughing, and we got each other's numbers, and we um, never stopped talking after that. We've been together for 15 years, um, married for 10, and uh, yeah, we have two oh beautiful boys. Gosh. Yeah. Wow, I think I fell in love a little bit just hearing that story. That's Lindsay and Pasadena. That's so sweet. I'm going to try to get a really quick one from Freddie. Freddie, we got about uh, 30 seconds, but if you can give me uh, your story, I would love to hear it. Freddie, are you with us? Oh, yes, yes, hello. Yeah, yeah, Freddie, give it to us real quick if you could. Yes, uh, I met my wife now for um, in a club. She was with a cousin of hers and her niece. They were celebrating a birthday. And uh, I was with my friends at that time. I wasn't drinking. She was a little tipsy. And I kept looking at her. And uh, I thought the gentleman was her boyfriend or so. But something in my guts were telling me after the dance. And I kept looking at her all night long. Um, long story is uh, short is that I asked her and she said no. And I asked her, that, are you sure? And she looked up at that moment, and she said, sure. And we went to dance, and it happened to be the last song of the night. Ah. And I was like, okay. And for sure, I asked her, do you want to be my friend? Uh, can I have your number? And she claims that she never gives her real number, and she did. And now we have two beautiful children. Um, we've been married for 24 years. Amazing, Freddie. We got to leave it there, but that's uh, that's an enchanted evening for sure. Freddie and Orange now married with two kids. We just heard from Lucy Brown, too, clinical professor in neurology at Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. We're talking about love at first sight, and we've got air talk just ahead. More. Stick around. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubrias, the Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. I'm LA's senior education reporter, Mariana Dale. The communities that are more marginalized or that do not have access are the ones that are in most need. I help families understand, navigate, and engage with the forces that shape education from kindergarten through high school. How do I explain to my daughter that the same day you got to celebrate a birthday, you got to celebrate the day your mama left. And I make space for students to tell their own stories. LA's independent journalism, fact-based journalism. It's Air Talk here on LAist 89.3, online at LAist.com and on our LAist app in crystal clear quality. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. He's back with you tomorrow. You know, recently, last week, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky sacked his top general in the war against Russia, Valery Zaluzhny. There was noticeable friction between the two for a while, and taking his place now is Colonel General Alexander Sirsky. And that shakeup comes as the conflict in Ukraine has reached a stalemate. Ammo is low. Troop morale is suffering. Funding for the war is undependable at best. So what's next for Ukraine's army and this war as we're throwing 
billions of dollars, continue to throw billions of dollars at it. Joining me is Sarah Rainsford, BBC Eastern Europe correspondent. She's currently in Ukraine. Sarah, thank you so much for making the time. My pleasure. Well, I mentioned these tensions between Zelensky and his former general now. Could you talk to me a little bit about how that was playing out in the public eye and maybe what we know about those uh, conflicts that they were having? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't really in the public eye. There was an awful lot of rumors uh, and a lot of kind of chatter, but nothing was ever, ever really public. It's just that about 10 days ago now, probably, uh, there was a, a report not confirmed that General Zeluzhin had been called in to the presidential office and that he was told that he was being sacked. And then it took uh, at least a week before anyone would confirm that. In fact, the presidential office here denied it. And now that you know it's out in the open and General Zeluzhin has been sacked and he's been replaced by Alexander Sirsky, the presidential office is very keen to say that this is not about politics, that it's nothing to do with any kind of personality clash. And it's all about a big reset. Um, and I think there's some truth in that, a lot of truth in that, because I think, you know, there's a, a real frustration in the presidential office that uh, this war is kind of sapping morale and sapping enthusiasm in Ukraine. While people truly believe still in the cause, they're not seeing a huge amount of progress. And I think uh, there was a sense that, you know, by making a big change, perhaps it could kind of reset uh, the, the mood here a little bit, have a bit of a reboot of the mood. And, and there was certainly a lot of talk from the briefing that I got from the president's office that there needed to be more positivity. And they felt that General Zeluzhny, because he gave an interview where he talked about a stalemate, uh, and that interview wasn't approved with the president's office, they thought that that was really bad for morale and they wanted a much more positive attitude. But I think, you know, behind all of that, there's definitely a personality clash. There's definitely a political rivalry, but certainly nobody publicly, including General Solutiony, will admit to that. Talking right now with Sarah Rainsford, BBC Eastern Europe correspondent. She is currently in Ukraine. Uh, Zeluzhny was or is a, a well-known figure in Ukrainian society. I, it's some sense that you know people are pretty big fans of him. How has his uh, essential firing been taken well, there's not been a kind of outpouring of kind of rage onto the streets. There's a couple of little protests that have happened. And on social media, there's certainly a bit of noise about it. But I think, you know, whilst people are frustrated and certainly uh, General Zeluzhny was and remains very popular because he stayed quiet, because he, you know, the announcement was that he's going to stay politically part of uh, the Zelensky team, if you like, and that certainly a, a job is going to be found for him. He hasn't come out and he hasn't he hasn't complained. He hasn't expressed any kind of. Uh, major disagreement in public because of that, because it's been kind of politically contained. I think people are kind of going with it for now uh, in the sense that they do hope that there can be some kind of progress on the battlefield and maybe the new guy will bring that. But I think there's also a lot of skepticism. A lot of people think it's political. You know, this is a country which for two years has really put politics on hold because people have been united behind the war effort and definitely politics is kind of creeping back into the into the equation now. Talking right now with Sarah Rainsford with the BBC. She's currently in Ukraine. Let's bring in Raphael Cohen to the conversation, director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND Project Air Force, also a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. Raphael, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I mean, something that stands out to me about Zeluzhny and his uh, activities prior to his layoff is that he did write uh, op-eds that appeared in both CNN and The Economist. 
And what I got from it is it seemed almost as though he was taking his viewpoints directly to the world, directly to America. He talked about uh, the country's regulatory framework and the partial monopolization of the defense industry. He also lays out that he thinks, you know, really the future is going to come down to uh, unmanned technology that can maybe help save the troops. And then also kind of puts it on the lap of the government when it comes to uh, whose job it is to ensure that they're getting their ranks properly filled. Uh, I'm curious what you've seen as you've been watching this conflict and the uh, now fired general and, and what stands out to you. Well, I think there's a couple of things that sort of stand out here. Uh, first off, I think it's important to realize that in the grand historical sweep, it's not uncommon for a commander in chief to change uh, general officers in the middle of a war. Um, you know, if you think back to American history, for instance, you know, when uh, the United States' operations in Iraq, for instance, began to falter, we replaced General Casey with uh, General Petraeus. We did that same in Vietnam. We did the same in uh, the Civil War, actually, multiple times. Lincoln goes through a series of generals. So the idea that Zelensky would ultimately replace Zeluzhny after what had been a disappointing counteroffensive is not frankly uncommon. And I think what you see here is playing out, it's a little bit of a tension between what political leaders are aiming for from their generals and what uh, generals reflect. And I think if you begin to dig into Zeluzhny's statements and Zelensky's preferences, you know, a lot of that comes down to sort of a civil mill tension that you see play out in other contexts as well. Well, I know that Zelensky has repeated often that he wishes to take back all of the land that's currently occupied by Russian forces. That seemed very difficult to do, uh, considering their current situation. Did you see a disagreement between Zeluzhny and Zelensky when uh, it came to this this one, uh, the outcome of the war, I guess I would I would put it? Yeah, I mean, I think there's disagreement here certainly on the public messaging. Um, you know, there's that economist piece uh, that we've already referenced where uh, Zeluzhny says the war's at a stalemate. Uh, the rumor is that Zelensky didn't like that. Uh, Zelensky wanted to sort of continue to strike a more optimistic tone. Uh, there's also uh, reporting to suggest that uh, Zeluzhny was pushing for a larger mobilization of the Ukrainian public. Zelensky said that that was politically unfeasible. And so you see that sort of tension playing out between the two individuals. I think the broader problem that Ukraine now faces is in some ways they're caught in a strategic catch-22. Um, they are very dependent on American aid. Um, American politics is such uh, that it's going to be difficult for them to get that aid unless they demonstrate lots of progress on the battlefield. But it's really hard to gain that progress unless they get more military aid and particularly more ammunition, because if you're running out of ammunition or rationing ammunition, as reports suggest, it's really hard to take uh, uh, push forward on any sort of military offensive. Talking right now with Rafael Cohen, director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND, Project Air Force. I want to come back to Sarah Rainsford. Sarah Rainsford with the BBC, Eastern Europe correspondent currently in Ukraine. Uh, as far as how the public is viewing this conflict, Sarah, I do understand based off of Zeluzhny's op-eds that eventually they will need to bring in new troops uh, to refresh 
Uh, the people who are already there, I know there's been some discussion about whether the people who have already fought need to be called back because of uh, a lack of troops. How's that being taken in society? How's that playing out as people think about the cost of this war as far as human lives and sacrifice and what more is needed to accomplish any real victory? It's the big deal. Uh, yeah, it's uh, these are facts. I mean, there is a general um, fatigue here, of course. Uh, the country is exhausted. Uh, the soldiers, perhaps more importantly, are exhausted because when they were uh, when they were mobilized and, and sent to the front, uh, they were given no end date. Uh, the current law uh, doesn't, uh, doesn't give a, a date by which they should be replaced. And that's why uh, there's a lot of people who are, who are basically stuck on the front line and a lot of people, their relatives in particular, who are, who are unhappy about that, saying, look, these men have given two years of their lives in terribly, uh, you know, te terrible conditions and, and fighting a, a really brutal war in many place, many points along the front line, and, and they deserve to be replaced. But frankly, there just aren't the the men and sometimes the women to replace them. And you've got a situation here, which I've been, uh, you know, reporting on on the ground for the last few weeks, and, and that that people who wanted to fight have gone to fight. The volunteers are all there. They're all either dead, injured, or stuck on the front line. You know, it, the the statistics don't exist, but the the you know, talk to any soldier and you you hear. Uh, the same thing. I spoke to one one guy who was um, uh, he was injured very badly injured. He lost his arm near Bakhmut, and he told me his entire company were either dead or injured very seriously, mm. like him. And that's a lot of soldiers that Ukraine is losing. So it's quite understandable why other people might not want to go and fight, although it is you know their, their duty according to to the laws of Ukraine. So there's a, a new law that's going through Parliament to to try, first of all, to find more men. So by lowering the age of conscription to 25, uh, which should produce more men who, who ought to go and fight, but it also uh, would reduce the length of time they had to go. It's trying to make conscription more palatable to people, more not attractive is not the right word, but less, uh, less difficult for them. So to say, look, if you go, you're going to have an end date, and this is the end date. But that end date currently would be three years. And a lot of people mm. here think that's still way too long to ask of people. Well, I know when you start asking people to sacrifice uh, their lives, their children to a conflict, do you feel as though the resolve in Ukraine to continue to fend off Russia is as strong as it was when that conflict first started? I don't think that's necessarily, uh, I guess, I suppose, a fair question. I mm. think, you know, I would say that the people here are 100% can, can, yeah, committed to defending their country from a war of aggression against them and an invasion that nobody here asked for. So, yes, they're 100% committed to the cause, but they are, uh, you know, worried that, that Western support has dropped. Um, you know, they're seeing what's going on in the U.S. at the moment. Uh, they're frightened by the fact that uh, there's, it's been so difficult even to get this far in terms of the U.S. aid package. They're very worried about what a potential Trump presidency would mean for Ukraine. So they're realistic. Uh, you know, they've seen how hard it was even for the EU to push through funding. Uh, and they do need the aid. You know, the money, the weapons and all of that is absolutely critical for the war here. So they're, they're, they're seeing that. And, you know, they're also seeing their men dying on the front in large numbers. And, yeah, of course, people are, are, are really kind of depressed now. I'd say the mood is much more somber now than it ever has been in all my two years of reporting on this war. But I would also say that people still desperately want to, to free their, their hometowns. They desperately want to go back to the towns that are occupied. They desperately uh, want to stop uh, the Russian forces. So it's a really difficult conundrum. Talking right now with Sarah Rainsford, BBC Eastern Europe correspondent currently in Ukraine. Also on the line with us is Raphael, Cohen, director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND, their project Air Force. 
Uh, Raphael Cohen, what do we know about Zeluzhny's replacement, Alexander Sierski? What do we know about his approach to the conflict uh, and maybe even his relationship with uh, Volodymyr Zelensky? So Alexander Sierski is the was the former uh, ground forces commander for the first couple of years of the conflict. Uh, he, like Zeluzhny, was brought up in the Soviet military. Um, he's supposedly enjoys a closer relationship to Zelensky. Um, so whether or not this brings a dramatic change in Ukrainian strategy, I think remains to be seen. Again, I'll go back to the previous statement that I made, is that it's really hard for Ukraine to do to fight a different kind of war if they do not have the equipment of which to fight with. So, you know, unless the United States and its Western allies uh, provide additional munitions in particular, it's going to be really hard for Alexander Sierski to fight a dramatically different war than his predecessor did, simply because he lacks the ammunition to do so. Yeah, I mean, his predecessor did take that almost exact argument to the public. And I should mention, of course, the Senate did pass a foreign aid bill early this morning, would have set aside about $60 billion to support Ukraine. We're hearing that it doesn't really have much of a chance of even coming to the floor in the House. So uh, not clear yet when the next round of funding will come. I believe the European Union did just give some funding. Um, what's it going to take to make any meaningful steps in this Raphael Cohen? Because uh, as we'd mentioned before, it appeared that we were at a, a stalemate, that Ukraine was at a stalemate in that conflict. Um, and, you know, short of more money coming in, more resources, uh, it seems very hard to imagine that changing significantly or them even accomplishing Zelensky's uh, goal of taking back every inch of land that's currently occupied by Russia. What is it going to take, uh, in your view, to continue this conflict and maybe even for Ukraine to win this conflict? So I think first step is, as I mentioned, more munitions, more equipment, right. uh, longer range weapons. Uh, so I would highlight in particular attackums, these longer range missiles to be able to strike deeper inside Russian lines. Uh, there's also been a lot of talk about giving Ukraine uh, F-16s. This has been a push, particularly from uh, the United States' European allies. I think that will help, probably not quite as much as uh, attack missiles will. But it's important, I think, in general, to keep up the military pressure on Russia. It's also important to keep up with the economic pressure on Russia, too. Um, you know, that's going to be sort of a slow process here. We know that sanctions don't work overnight. Uh, we instituted a slew of them right at the beginning of the war. Um, and, but those could take years on end to work. And then, you know, last off, I think it's the important thing is the uh, point of NATO cohesion. Um, you know, I think if Russia has a serious victory here is that the United States and its Western allies would grow tired of this com conflict or grow tired more quickly than than Vladimir Putin does. Mm -hmm. uh, so in some ways, we're stuck in this sort of waiting game here where we need to um, ensure that that does not happen. A lot hinges maybe on who the next president is going to be, right? Uh, well, uh, there is clearly a difference of opinion between the two leading presidential candidates. 
That's Raphael Cohen, director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program of RAND, Project Air Force, also a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. We also heard from Sarah Rainsford, BBC Eastern Europe correspondent, currently in Ukraine. My thanks to both of our guests today. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mantle. When we come back, we are going to talk about Toby Keith. Yeah, the late country music star. There's a lot said in his music. There's been a lot said about his music. But above all, he's always been a songwriter. But sometimes it's been very hard to lose certain labels throughout his career. We're going to talk about the late Toby Keith when we come back. Stick around. It's Air Talk here on Elaist 89.3. I'm Austin Cross. Right now we're going to talk about Toby Keith, acclaimed country musician, best known for his hits like this one, How Do You Like Me Now? This is the karaoke version, so the lyrics aren't going to come in yet. But, I mean, that's a fun one. Back in the early thousands, this killed at uh, karaoke, I will say. Um, but a lot's changed for Toby Keith in his career and in his lifetime from when he first hit it big uh, to later on in his career. There were some of his songs that uh, appealed with certain audiences more than others, and then certain songs that allowed people or caused people to put a label on him and his music and his style that he found hard to lose. But obviously people are very complicated, so in light of his passing, we're going to talk about that. Joining us to dig a bit deeper into his life and music and what shaped our perspectives on him. Nadine Hubbs, professor of women's and gender studies and music at the University of Michigan. She's also author of Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music. Nadine Hubbs, thank you so much for being with us. Glad to be here. Also on the line, we're joined by Joseph M. Thompson, assistant professor of history at Mississippi State University. His, he's author of the forthcoming book, Cold War Country, How Nashville's Music Row and the Pentagon Created the Sound of American Patriotism. There's a whole lot there. Uh, Joseph Thompson, thank you so much for being with us. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Well, Professor Thompson, just to start off, if you could give us a sense of uh, the early 90s, the country music scene that Toby Keith entered into, and maybe where he even fit into that at the time. Sure. Um, so, yeah, when we think about Toby Keith's emergence on the on the country music scene, yeah, it, it is the kind of early to mid 90s. He He's riding a wave of interest in what uh, people call hat acts. So think your Garth Brooks, your Clint Blacks, uh, these kind of superstars of early 90s country. Um, and he and he comes in, yes, with a should have been a cowboy, a very kind of uh, classic uh, country theme. Um, and is able to ride that to success. And uh, of course, um, he, he will become known for uh, his, his more political songs. Um, but, but yeah, at, at the first, he, he just seems like to be another one of these kinds of hat acts in the, in the trend of Garth Brooks and Clint Black. So we actually have Should Have Been a Cowboy uh, ready to play. So let's go ahead and listen to a little bit of that, just to give people a sense of how he was sounding early on. I believe this is one of his earliest or first chart toppers. I'll bet you never heard old Marshall Dillon say, Miss Kitty, have you ever thought of running away? Settling down, would you marry me? If I ask you twice and beg you pretty please. She'd have said yes in a New York minute. They never 
tied a knot His heart wasn't in it He just stole a kiss as he rode away He never hung his hat up At Kitty's place I should have been a cowboy So fun uh, talking right now about Toby Keith and his music. I mean, that's certainly a generational thing at this point. It's like, well, okay, so who grew up watching Gunsmoke at this stage? But if you were up on it, you certainly were following the storyline in there. Uh, Nadine Hubbs, uh, author of Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music. Anything you would add about this particular stage uh, in Toby Keith's musical career and, and what he was going for with his music? I think in that stage you see as as you just suggested a kind of a, a generational uh relating people who grew up with the same shows he grew up with people who grew up with uh westerns um and yeah there's this americana theme of it um it's gently nostalgic and you just hear that he he has this beautiful baritone that he can croon with and sometimes in other songs he can growl with it um but yeah i don't think he had any idea that he was gonna blow up as a politicized figure and uh you certainly don't hear any hint of that in a song like this i mean so it certainly framed him as as the atlantic put it the regretful romantic right uh, but then later in his career, so we're going to fast forward, he changed record albums. And then it's been said that this next stage in the song we're going to listen to is How Do You Like Me Now? It, it, it represents the stage for Toby Keith where he was, uh, as they put it uh, in the Atlantic, a little bit hammy, a little bit randy and reliant on smirks instead of heartstrings. So before it should have been cowboy heartstrings. Now we're looking at a little bit hammy, randy, but we're going to hear it in this one. Let's take a quick listen. Always a crazy one broke into the stadium and I wrote your number on a 50-yard line. You were always a perfect one and a valedictorian. So under your number I wrote come for a good time. I only wanted to get your attention, but you overlooked me somehow. Besides, you had too many boyfriends to mention, and I played my guitar too loud. How do you like me now? Uh, so fun. So at this point, a lot of the artists that uh, Toby Keith had been touring with, they had made certain transitions. He was with Shania Twain at the time. A lot of folks know Shania Twain. She'd already turned her 97 album uh, into a, a pop hit. It's actually started to have some crossover appeal. But I do want to ask you, uh, Nadine Hubbs, how does country music, especially over the past 30 or so years, evolve to reflect the attitudes of its listeners? Because if I'm listening to this song compared to Should Have Been a Cowboy, it would almost feel as if people were going through very different things in those two different windows of time. What do you see there? I see that there's a great diversity of um, songs in every period. And uh, from the from 1993 to uh, even you know to the early 2000s, some of the themes uh, that rose up changed, but the, these themes are classic. He's talking about a football field in this one. I mean, one thing about Toby Keith is that a lot of uh, masculine themes come up again and again mm -hmm. in his songs. But um, by contrast to, I think. Uh, 
an, a kind of outside perspective on him that would see him as a jingoistic, um, uh, maybe right. macho figure. Mm-hmm. Masculine themes come up, like the cowboy with loving nostalgia, like football, and he was a, a semi-pro what, defensive end. Um, and and then Western themes. He he was from Oklahoma and lived his entire life there, um, as well as the the military address mm-hmm. in um, the songs he sang for his USO tours and and uh, some of which we've heard too. Um, I would really underscore if you give the most cursory listen to these songs on masculine themes. You hear lots of humor and wit and um, often self-irony directed particularly at the masculinity. A song, for example, like... Hold on just a second there, because I do want to get Joseph's take on this. You're you're moving faster than I am right now. But let me bring in Joseph Thompson. He's assistant professor of history at Mississippi State University. Um, And I also want to point out, just to Nadine's point about masculinity... There's also some things in here that strike you as very of the time and very like very much something that a guy would say. Like, and how do you like me now? He's got this verse that says, he never comes home. You're always alone. This is kind of like rubbing it in her face. She chose this guy, not him. You're always at home. Uh, you're alone. Your kids hear you cry down the hall, which has a little bit of actual cruelty to it. But Joseph Thompson, I want to put it to you and what you think is being reflected in this chapter of Toby Keith's career. Yeah, I would, I would echo a lot of what Nadine has said. Um, I would only add that I think, and this is sort of just a putting a finer point on it, that I think you're hearing a kind of mixture of humility and resentment in uh, in both of these songs, like should have been a cowboy, right? He's looking back in a little bit of regret, right? What could I, what could I have done? Oh, I could have lived up to this more mat, uh, macho masculine figure or, and uh, how do you like me now? It's, it's, again, it's a little bit of, uh, it's a, it's mixing this kind of resentment about what could have been with the humility of saying yes I know I'm just a uh, at least I'm performing this kind of version of masculinity that is kind of uh, kind of underdog kind of working class right um, and but I'm mixing that humility with resentment because yes even though I have these humble roots you should have respected me and you should respect me all along I mean do you think uh, so I think it's that that kind of mixture yeah what what made it appeal to so many people is those are very human emotions and i mean i won't finger wag and say we well, should you know you shouldn't be resentful you shouldn't say these things to people etc cetera, etc cetera. and i think a lot of these discourses have now played out online and, and points to certain behaviors that do show up within male communities um that you know are, are certainly worth addressing but i think and let me know if you think this as well joseph thompson this just seems like something that um is very human and would very much connect with a lot of guys out there at the time who are maybe watching the gal that they had a crush on walk away with somebody else. Absolutely. I mean, then uh, again, to, to reiterate what Nadine said earlier, that is a kind of classic country mm. theme. It uh, was what ma- one of the things that makes country music so appealing to so many people across different demographics, right? 
but at the same time, you, you bring up a good point that, um, you know, taken to its extreme, that resentment coupled with a kind of uh, masculinity can be a, a toxic mix, particularly in our, our current discourse. All right. I got one more I want to throw at you because you are uh, the book uh, author, forthcoming book titled Cold War Country, How Nashville's Music Grow and the Pentagon Created the Sound of American Patriotism. And probably the most America song that I've ever heard is Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White and Blue. This, uh, in parentheses, the song title, by the way, The Angry American, it got him a lot of notoriety. I'd say it also made him a polarizing figure within music probably right up until his passing. But let's listen to one part of it, probably the most hardcore uh, part that stands out to a lot of people. Let's take a listen to that. Justice will be served and the battle will rage. This big dog will fight when you rattle his cage. And you'll be sorry that you mess with the U.S. of A. Cause we'll put a boot in your A single uh, week number one on the country charts, that song. Joseph Thompson, what are you hearing in that song? Yeah, so this is indeed, as you suggest, kind of my wheelhouse here. Um, Toby Keith, he, he does this song and Toby Keith's um, The Last... 20 years or so of his career has done a lot to kind of collapse our understanding of country music as somehow inherently conservative because it's uh, so robustly um, uh, in support of these militaristic actions, this kind of hawkish version of patriotism. Um, And we can't, we can't um, kind of divorce country uh, Toby Keith from that legacy for sure. At the same time, I I want to say that he is, uh, he is a part of a long tradition at that point that stretches back at least 50 years of country music kind of cultivating a relationship with the military. Um, going back all the way to the, the 1950s when support for the military wasn't seen as a, as a partisan issue, uh, mm-hmm. but instead was seen as something that was just uh, inherently patriotic in line with our Cold War aims at the time, right? So it's not until we get to Vietnam and Richard Nixon that that support for the military becomes somehow uh, sort of collapsed with supporting mm. uh, uh, conservative politics and becomes kind of a, we- a cultural wedge issue, which Nixon is all all uh, ha- all too happy to exploit, which is why he invites people like Merle Haggard to the White House to perform his, what are called his backlash hits, right? Uh, Okie from Muskogee and the fighting side of me. Now, here I would I would call our attention to a kind of parallel between Haggard and and Toby Keith in oh. that they're writing from a particular perspective that is not necessarily autobiographical. So we do a disservice to these artists, I think, when we kind of collapse the singer and the song, uh, uh-huh. and assume that they're writing from their own personal perspective. Uh, Toby Keith was actually writing in, from the perspective of his father, at least that's how he explained it, and he was writing in a to target. Um, the uh, America's intervention in Afghanistan. He did not see that song as a sort of blanket endorsement for all military action by the United States. And he came to resent that. 
Sorry, say, the, the tone that he took, though, compared to somebody like Alan Jackson, we don't have this clip on the record, but uh, Alan Jackson's Where Were sure. You When the World Stopped Turning, which was, I think, it debuted in November, maybe at the Country Music Awards in 2001. And um, That's right. you know, much more pensive, uh, painful uh, morning, morning song um, compared to what came out. And I believe this was May of 2002 is when courtesy of the Red, White and Blue hit. So there's certainly a real... Uh, a change in how people were feeling between those windows of time. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's, um, this is not to, to try to uh, apologize for the kind of uh, rhetoric and the sort of jingoism that gets built out of Toby Keith's. But I think we do have to sort of contextualize him in that moment and, and think back to that time in which that kind of robust support was also seen as a uh, largely bipartisan uh, uh, or, or gained bipartisan support. So it wasn't necessarily seen as, as uh, solely identified with the Republican Party at that time, uh, which is what makes it so interesting because now it is, right? Now we see that as somehow inherently conservative, um, something that plays to our, our, uh, right. our deep partisanship these days. I want to bring Nadine Hubs back into the conversation. Nadine, I want to give you the final word on this because you are the author of Rednecks, Queers, Country Music. This is also an area that you've specialized in as well. What stands out to you about this chapter of Toby Keith? And also, if you would uh, want to say anything about this concept that you know, uh, Professor Thompson had pointed out that actually opened my mind up a little bit to the fact that yeah, you do have to separate the songwriter from the song, because I think the label that went on Toby Keith after that was like, he's the angry American. He's always angry. And he tried so hard to maybe push that title away afterward. But what are your thoughts, Nadine? I agree with what Joseph was saying. And that historical perspective is really helpful um, about where Republicans and Democrats started to diverge in their uh, positions. I would say that there are class differences that very much need to be taken into account here too. Um, Toby Keith came up working class. He hustled um, until he really made it in the music business. Besides working as a semi-pro football player, he had been a roughneck in the oil fields in Oklahoma. So um, I hear in his songs again and again, an expression of empathy and compassion toward working class people in working class lives. And I hear that also in courtesy of the Red, White and Blue. This was a song that Toby Keith had performed, had written and performed only on his USO tours. So who's his audience there? Mm. These are young working class kids who are about to place themselves in harm's way, most likely scared to death. <sighs> and Keith wrote them the most rousing, patriotic, uh, feel-good battle cry, battle uh, rally that you can imagine. Um, now, as, as you mentioned, this, this was in response to the Afghanistan war. 80% of United States casualties in that war were working class. So I think that uh, Keith's misstep was that when the troops spoke to him on the tours and said, God, we love this song. This is such a great song. When are you going to record it? He he did so. Mm. And it plays really differently in the civilian public sphere than it does in that in-house context of the, the USO tours. And moreover, the context is one of this 
uh, American public sphere that assumes always middle-class cultural norms. We lack a working-class cultural literacy in the United States. And so um, we don't get that a shout-out to the troops in country songs since the 50s that Joseph spoke about, all the way up to certainly uh, the early 2000s and even today, that is not a political gesture in this context. Mm. It is it is a familial gesture. If 80% of those casualties were working class, working class listeners are a lot more likely to know or have a family member in the military. I've more recently in my current project on um, Mexican-American country music fans spoken with working class Mexican-Americans too who say one of my favorite things is when I hear that shout out to the troops in a country song. Um, often they are veterans of the U.S. military. Mm. So they don't see that as political in the least. That's like a, a hug, an embrace, um, and often on a familial level, which is very uh, conspicuous in Toby Keith's lyrics. He starts out singing about his dad fighting right. in World War II. Served uh, in the army, lost his right eye. Lost his right eye. Yeah, so it's, it's clearly familial there. That's Nadine Hubbs, professor of women's and gender studies and music at the University of Michigan and author of Rednecks, Queers, and Country Music. We also heard from Joseph Thompson, assistant professor of history at Mississippi State University. His forthcoming book is titled Cold War Country, How Nashville's Music Row and the Pentagon Created the Sound of American Patriotism. We've been looking back at Toby Keith's impact on music and his affiliation with America's culture war. We go out with uh, Don't Let the Old Man In, song actually inspired by Clint Eastwood uh, about letting old age creep up on you. This is I won't live me Can't leave it up to him He's knocking on my door I knew all of my life That someday it would end Get up and go outside Don't let the old man in This is Air Talk, back in 60 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. It's Air Talk here on LAS 89.3. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mandel, who's back with you tomorrow for Valentine's Day. You know, I ran across an interesting story from Vox this past week. It explains how TikTok 
is just bursting at the seams with people trying to coin new terms and phrases. So in other words, for all my mean girls people out there, TikTokers are trying to make fetch happen. You love him, and he totally complimented you. That is so fetch. Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Okay, Regina George was right. Fetch did not happen, but it's happening in other terms. Think girl math, loud budgeting, micro-cheating. So there's competition for creating the next viral word or phrase, and it is fierce online. Joining me to talk about it, Rebecca Jennings, senior correspondent at Vox and the author of the piece that I mentioned earlier that inspires this conversation. It's titled, TikTok is full of try-hard slang. Rebecca, so nice to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. Also on the line, we have linguistics expert Sylvia Sierra, professor of communication at Syracuse University. She actually studies how people use language in social interactions. Uh, Professor Sierra, thank you so much for being with us as well. Thank you. Happy to be here. Well, Rebecca, just start us off with how you got inspired to dig into these slangs that keep showing up on TikTok. Yeah. So I've kind of been noticing this for the last, I want to say like five years, ever since TikTok really went mainstream. It's like every week or month or whatever, there's this new term that some TikToker decides to coin. And it's really big for like a couple days or a couple weeks. And then it just kind of dies out. And now that I think TikTokers are sort of wise to the ways that this happens, they're kind of competing to coin the next viral term or name the next trend, even before it's really a thing. And I think the thing that really inspired me to write this was just the most ridiculous one where some guy was like, does anyone else just love like a dinner and couch friend? Like a, you have dinner and then you sit on the couch. I was like, do you mean a friend? Like, <laughs> Do you mean just a basic ordinary friend? <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I mean, to the, to that TikToker's credit, though, there are certain friends that you can do uh, certain things with. And yeah, couch friend might begin to describe it, but I don't know if we need a word for it. Exactly. Uh, and that's why, like, you know, there is a re- there is a truth to that. But at the same time, it's like, why did that go so viral? <laughs> I am trying to make that fetch happen. By the way, for folks listening in, if there's a, a word or a slang that you grew up with, maybe that you still use, um, maybe it's gone out of style by now. I'm not thinking words like groovy or solid, but maybe. Uh, but if there's one, maybe even a regional one that you grew up with that you think is just so interesting now when you look back at it, 866-893-5722 is our number if you'd like to share. 866-893-5722. I also want to know what it means. Uh, also, atcomments at las.com. You can email us. Just give us your name. Let us know where you're emailing from. Let's go to Professor Sierra over at Syracuse University. What's so different, Professor, about how these words are entering into our vocabulary, how these phrases are entering in, right, compared to historically how new words and phrases have entered into our vocabulary? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about this TikTok uh, phenomenon that Rebecca calls trend bait in her article, which I just love, uh, (laughs) coming up with yet another coinage, um, is that typically when we see new words and slang coming into our language, they're coming through this bottom-up process, and they're usually created by young people, often young minoritized people, like young Black women, people from queer communities uh, often are very linguistically creative, and then their uh, linguistic innovation spreads outside of the community and becomes more mainstream. But with TikTok, we're seeing this 
um, almost social clout, and I guess also a financial pressure for people to come up with new words just so that they can go viral or maybe even make some money off of it. So it's a top-down approach to an attempt at language change, which is just fascinating. You know, I'll say when I was in high school, uh, the movie Phantom of the Opera was really big. In my friend group, we had this term that we coined based off of the movie Phantom of the Opera. Uh, after Christine sings her solo and the guy Raul shows up and he he kind of wants to be her butt, as we came up with this term, the Raul, for a person who shows up when things in your life are going really well, like they weren't around <laughs> before. And so I'll say what it is for our group is even now, almost 20 years later, um, we'll still like look at people and be like, oh, that's a Raul for sure. Like, <laughs> but it bonds us together. You know, it's kind of something that creates connection. Is that why we come up with these phrases? Yes, in large part. Uh, and in my book, Millennials Talking Media, this is exactly what the book is all about. I mean, millennials do this, but all really everyone does this. We come up with these inside terms, these inside jokes, these allusions, these references, and they're really what binds us together as part of a social group, exactly like you said. And like I said, usually those come about organically, uh, but TikTok is sort of interrupting the process now. And it's interesting to see if, it, you know, which, if any of these terms actually catch on and, and what goes into that. Talking right now with Professor Sylvia Sierra, Associate Professor of Communication at Syracuse University. She studies how people use language in social interactions. Uh, also talking with Rebecca Jennings, who wrote the piece that's really inspired this conversation. Uh, titled TikTok is full of try-hard slang. And Rebecca, I want to focus in again on just how people are trying to make fetch happen in these sorts of situations, right? They're, they're trying to put those terms out here. But unlike how it was before, and I'm thinking of the girl who unintentionally coined the phrase on fleek, which was really a big thing like eight, nine years ago. Um, but they're actually trying to say, yeah, I came up with this term um, and they might not make money from it but they get something else from it, like a social clout. Can you talk to me about how intentional it is and, and maybe how it feels like they're trying too hard eventually? I think that's why people get a little bit fatigued by this. Is It's because it is so obvious that someone is trying to, to use the main girl's quote, make fetch happen. Um, you know, when someone is talking about, you like, you know, the clean girl aesthetic is out. The mob wife aesthetic is in. They're not even really observing trends. They're is just that... sort of like trying to put a name to something that doesn't really exist. Wait, <laughs> like, is the mob wife aesthetic, just first of all, is that like Carmela from The Sopranos or what yeah, is this? 100%. Okay. Yes. <laughs> you got it. Wow. Um, and, and so it, it's really not because they want um, financial gain because I think they've learned from past generations of content creators like no one is making like real money from this you obviously can't copyright slang and the best you can hope for is like a brand deal or two it's maybe like a couple thousand bucks but what they're really after is the ability to be perceived as someone who's the cultural thought leader someone who can have the power to go viral and like affect the way people talk um, but for the most part what ends up happening is that so many of these terms get created and they really are only useful to the extent that they can help other people go viral by like making a, a response video to that. Like, I think there was an example recently of something called leggings legs, which is, uh, you know, a, a horrible, like, you know, body policing kind of term for like, do, are your legs cute enough to wear leggings? And then it was just like, 
used in this like sort of funnel of, oh. of marketing terms to like influencers showing off whether they had that or, or explaining why it was problematic and, and sort of this loop. And then, you know, that term will obviously die out in a couple of weeks. Um, and it just ends up in this landfill of attention economy language that we don't use anymore. I mean, things move so quickly. But what I also thought was interesting that you pointed out in your piece is that journalists also help amplify these terms as well, right? Yeah, 100%. It's like, I, you know, I'm complicit in this uh, as a culture journalist, you know, it's we like, blame we, you, are Rebecca. Sort of, <laughs> uh, we are captive, captive to whatever's going viral online, because we're hoping to, you know, capitalize on some of those, some of that attention, some of those uh, Google searches in the hopes that someone will read our work. Um, and so it's this sort of machine. And, and obviously, journalists were among the people who you know, historically have been the ones to coin new terms, same with screenwriters and musicians and and kind of like the cultural gatekeepers of yore. But now that we live in a world where anyone with a TikTok account is their own media company, it's like we have all this competition from random Joe on TikTok who's just like dinner and couch friend. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, there's actually one person that you spoke to um, who came up with a term to define the people who keep trying to come up with terms what's their term for the people who've come up with terms if you're still following yeah uh yes so so she goes she's like this is my impression of a tiktoker influencer who comes on here and starts to explain an experience or a feeling or a kind of person that's literally definable in a dictionary like they're the first person ever to encounter or feel something like this and they speak about it this crazy authoritative educational tone uh she doesn't come up with the term but that's her description of it and i'm just like that's so perfect it's like a what about me effect right it's yeah like... that's so that was that was her that was her inspiration for starting it someone else oh, came up with this okay. term called the what about me effect and it was like you can just say that in a regular sentence <laughs> <laughs> but they have to make it about themselves yeah <laughs> uh, i've just got about 30 seconds left but we see there's a rapid evolution that happens online like obviously this seems like it is the result of people evolving after watching terms like on fleek you know, go big and the creator really having no control, getting no gain from it, no clout gain even. Um, do you think we're going to evolve past this to the point where we don't need to come up with our own terms for everything? Uh, I, I doubt it. Never. I think this is a forever <laughs> problem. <laughs> this is a forever problem. Rebecca Jennings, senior correspondent covering social platforms, creator economy at Vox. Thank you so much for being with us, Rebecca. Thank you so much. We also heard from Sylvia Sierra, professor of communication at Syracuse University and author of the book Millennials Talking Media. So nice to have you with us, Sylvia, as well. This is Air Talk. I'm Austin Cross in today for Larry Mandel. He's back with you tomorrow for Valentine's Day. Then I'm with you on Thursday and Friday. We're going to have some fun. But until then, have a fabulous day, everyone. And I'll see you soon. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever, and how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts.